Saturday morning, and welcome to the Joy of Gardening by Estabrooks. I'm Tom Estabrook. February 8th. Here we go. February. We're underway. It's been cold, obviously, but now we're starting to get closer and closer to spring. You know, every day that the sun's out, the days are getting longer, everything's kind of feeling a little bit better. I know my energy level's starting to come up. Things are happening in the greenhouse. A lot of fun stuff going on. We're potting perennials. We're sticking cuttings of all sorts of different things. And we're just having fun. You know, it's warm in the greenhouse right now. You know, we're a few weeks away from opening in Yarmouth. And uh, the store is starting to take shape. New products are being unpacked. You know, the buzz of spring for us is starting. You know, flower shows coming in early March. You know, we're just on the cusp. Now is the time to think about all of those things. And today we're going to talk a little bit about a whole bunch of issues. Um, we're going to have Lois Stack, Extension Specialist for Ornamental Horticulture, on today. We're going to talk a little bit about downy mildew, which we talked a little bit about last week. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about seed starting with her. Um, possible other things we should be looking out for 2014. Tips on winter pruning. You know, we're getting towards the end of winter pruning. You know, so maybe that apple tree, you know, you've got to kind of put a priority on some of these things that maybe need to be pruned. We're going to also talk a little bit about this Arctic cold blast that we had. You know, it's it's been really tough. Did it affect insects out in our environment? Did it affect some of the tender plants that you had? What things might have died back or gotten damage in ice and snow? So we'll talk with Lois a little bit about that. And last but not least, by all means, we're going to talk to her a little bit about emerald ash borer. Because in the last couple of weeks, I've gotten some reports from the state and been looking up a whole bunch of research for uh, the Yarmouth Tree Committee. We've been working on a project to kind of do some more research on this and get prepped for the problem that is coming up the turnpike. There's no doubt about it. The likelihood is emerald ash borer is in Maine someplace at this point. We're not sure where. We haven't had any reportings of it yet, but it is spread throughout southern New Hampshire, and they're having a major problem starting down there. So it's just a matter of time. And this insect's kind of like a rocket ship. It will just continue to fly up the turnpike if it decides to. So, you know, all of those things we're going to cover with Lois Stack. The other thing we're going to talk about is we're going to talk with Jeff Marsteller of Cozy Acre Greenhouses today also. And Jeff was my professor in greenhouse management when I was in college. Now, I know I'm starting to date him a little bit and date me also. So we've had a relationship for over 20 years, and we've spent some time over the years. We went to Rutgers together and did some uh, different research and, and all kinds of sort of things. But Jeff does wholesale, but he really is into a very interesting project. He has gotten very heavily into geothermal and also into solar power to basically do this project, which will have a zero-emissions greenhouse. Now, this could be the only greenhouse in the United States. I challenge you to Google search zero-carbon footprint greenhouse and find it on the web, on the web. We can't. So we may be leading the way here in Maine. So I want to hear from Jeff about what's going on with that, how he's gone and done it, and what this looks like for the future. Because 
we are the green industry. You know, there are many other industries out there that have touted themselves as green industry. But horticulture is the ultimate green industry. I'm sorry. We have plants that refresh our oxygen. We add color and beauty to our, you know, environment. Everything about us is really, really green. So just another thing we want to talk about today. So as we go forward with guests this spring, we've got just a whole host of things. Next week, we're going to have Carrie Ann Mendez on, and she's going to be talking about her books and all kinds of wonderful, wonderful things. So a lot of cool, cool guests being lined up at this point. But let's talk a little bit about your yard right now. It's been really cold. We've had a true main winter this year. And it's been kind of tough. You know, we've been locked in the house. These cold temperatures, you can't get out and exercise, ski. You know, it, it, you got to pick your moments to do what you can. But now we're kind of moderating a bit. The polar vortex is kind of changing up there in the Arctic. At least that's what they keep telling us. Now we're going to have warm and cold days. But I want to talk about how therapeutic it can be to visit an independent garden center right now. Now, a lot of them are closed, but there are many that are open. If you get an opportunity just to walk through a greenhouse with some flowers, what it can do for a mental state is huge. I even go visit some of the other garden centers just to see what's growing, to see something different. I can get caught up in my day-to-day routine, but it's really nice to see fresh-grown plants, really cool things, feel that humidity and warmth in the greenhouse, it's kind of just melts you. I, I don't know. I can't explain that humidity, what it does for me. You know, maybe it brings me back to the trip to Florida a few weeks ago. But anyways, you know, enough about that. So today we're going to talk with Lois Stack. We're going to bring her in here shortly and kind of tick off some of these things that are going to be happening for 2014. So the radio show is really going to kind of take shape this year. We've got a whole host of different things that we've got planned, you know, maybe even some fun along the way since it's for the joy of gardening. And uh, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be back with more from the joy of gardening on News Talk WLOB. The main gardening season can often feel like a race to the finish line, so give yourself a head start by doing a little planning this winter. Visit EsterBrooksOnline.com and browse thousands of plant photos, descriptions, and care requirements in the Estabrooks Online Plant Catalog. It's the ultimate resource as you create your garden to-do list. Plus, don't forget that Estabrooks is now taking plant pre-orders. Contact their garden pros to ensure you'll have the plants you need this spring. To learn more, visit estabrooksonline.com. Estabrooks, for the joy of gardening. Welcome back to The Joy of Gardening by Estabrooks. I'm Tom Estabrook. And today we're talking with Lois Stack, Extension Specialist of Ornamental Horticulture at University of Maine. Lois, how are you today? Great. How are you? Well, I'm warming up. You know, uh, <laughs> you know, it's February 8th, and you know, th- we're headed towards spring, which is really exciting. You know, we're in February now, and, and uh, you know, the light is at the end of the tunnel, I kind of feel. 
Well, the light is increasing. That's the <laughs> wonderful thing about this time of year is we can finally come to work and go home both in daylight. That makes a huge difference for just the mental state for me. Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, we've been kind of tossing this around, and last year we talked to you a lot about downy mildew on impatience. And uh, we were screaming at the top of our lungs that, boy, this could be a huge thing. Give us an update of what truly happened out there. Well, it's it, biology is so interesting. Nothing is black and white. We can look at records, we can make predictions, but living organisms, for example, people, do what they do. And, and sometimes our predictions or expectations aren't exactly what we find out. So as you and, and all of our listeners know, this disease, impatience downy mildew, is a huge threat to not New Guinea impatience, but to our standard impatience that we all depend on so much in our landscapes, especially shady spots. And this disease just makes them mush. They get infected. You see a little white on the backs of the leaves, and the next time you look, they've dropped their leaves, and the next time you look, they're, they're just history. There's nothing left but those bare stems. And we saw enough of that in previous years um, over the world, especially in Europe, and within the country in most of our states, to be very alarmed and, and to try to come to grips with this disease and maybe, maybe manage it a little bit. Mm -hmm. So as you and all gardeners know, last year everybody recommended not growing impatience because the more impatience that are around our landscapes, the more plant material there is for this disease to attack. So if we can limit the impatience and not spread that inoculum of the fungus around, maybe we will buy a little bit of time until we have better control methods. We don't really have any in the landscape now. Mm -hmm. Or until we have plants that are resistant. So last year, all of us were predicting that we would see a fair amount of impatience downy mildew around Maine. So I thought it was a good time to contact our network of Maine master gardeners to have them just send me a heads up when they located impatience downy mildew and tell me where it was and how severe it was. Mm -hmm. And you know what? I had one sighting in Bath, and that's confirmed. Uh, that's all I got statewide from all of the master gardeners. Now, that doesn't mean that's all there was. Maybe somebody forgot to let me know, but I saw I, we had that one sighting. I had one sighting in Portland from a greenhouse grower. We had one sighting from our state inspectors, and I'm not sure where that one was. Yep. And then I saw it here in Orono. And to be honest, those four locations are the only ones I know of in Maine last summer. Yeah, it, it definitely was out there. Uh, you know, it, it didn't seem to be that widespread wipeout scenario, I think primarily because there just wasn't as many impatience out there. Exactly, exactly. You, can, I, can I ask, um, can you estimate how many places you might have seen it in in the greater Portland area? Well, it's really interesting because I really you know, looked and looked and looked. Every time I saw impatience, I would walk over and I would really inspect and look. And for 90% of the season, I didn't see anything. And then all of a sudden, about the first week of September, I would walk by patches, you know, in commercial buildings that all of a sudden just the leaves were dropped and it definitely was there. 
But it really didn't happen until that late, which was really surprising to me, uh, that the infestations I saw were not only in residential, but also commercial, and they really happened extremely late. And I don't know if that's just our weather pattern or conditions. Well, that's an interesting question. And I have to tell you that the impatience that I saw here in Orono on the UMaine campus were not infected until early September either. And gratefully, I had already taught that plant before the disease took over. So Mm -hmm. I made it in there. But I think I heard the same in other states as well, that the infections were late in the season. Mm -hmm. And although they were devastating, we had gotten through most of the summer. So in my book, that's the perfect time to yank them out of there, get break up the leaves, get rid of all that plant material and inoculum, and maybe plant some fall pansies or a few fall mums or some flowering kale or something new for the fall. So maybe, in a way, it perked up our landscapes. Well, that, I, that's kind of what I was getting at. I mean, if this disease doesn't show up for us until that late, I would think that customers would be just happy with that, but we really don't know. Exactly. And there, there, we have to think back to where is this disease coming from each time that it appears. And there could be, I can think of three big sources. Number one, you could buy plants in the spring that are already infected. And in that case, I would expect the disease to develop earlier in the season because, after all, the disease is already there. It just needs the right conditions to happen. Um, Number two, once impatients are planted in a location, if the disease develops and if the plant material is not cleaned up and removed promptly and completely, then the fungus has time to form a type of spore, an overwintering structure, that may be able to survive in our soils. Now, we're, we're looking at some of the samples from last year with a pathologist in Long Island to mm-hmm. see if, in fact, they can survive in our main soils, but we're pretty sure that they can. Mm-hmm. So in that case, if you plant perfectly healthy plants, the disease may already be there. But the third thing is that maybe those spores are just blowing in on air currents and they're not arriving until later in the summer. And I think maybe that's what you and I saw last summer. Yeah, I mean, it seemed like we had a really nice July and August that we had a couple stints of hot, humid weather, but we didn't really have that rainy condition, you know, that that condition where we had big storms and, and uh, the air currents. You know, we had nice, gentle breezes, but it was beautiful summer last year. It was, wasn't it? Um, And that brings up another question. In addition to trying to understand this fairly new disease and trying to grow very healthy crops and make the best conditions, we also have to think about global climate change and will that alter what we see in the future. We'll, We'll just have to wait and see, but there's always something new to think about. Well, definitely we've had a change this winter, for sure. I mean, this cold weather, I mean, up there in Orono, you must be just freezing. Well, it has been a nice nippy winter, (laughs) and I noticed that when I walk my students across campus to see different greenhouses, they sometimes ask me if we're not going to take a van. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) I'm sure they move a little quicker, too. (laughs) They do. It makes the lab go quickly. (laughs) All right, so... You know, I guess the big the big thing I take away from the conversation we had in 2013 is we really got a chance to try a lot of new varieties in shade 
And I think we're more diverse because of this problem. And maybe we've actually set up some customers to try some different things. Oh, absolutely. In fact, I think there are two changes. One is the change in plants. And last year, I tell you, I was every greenhouse's best customer. I kept seeing new begonias that I hadn't seen on the market before Mm. or some that I hadn't seen for many years. So I was picking up unusual plants that I just love to grow. But the second thing is maybe it's causing us to rethink our gardening a little bit. We had kind of gotten into a rut where if we had a shady area, we just planted loads of impatience. And maybe this caused us to rethink how we garden and get a little more creative. I think that's absolutely correct. You know, I saw customers really challenging themselves. The one thing that concerned me is I did see a lot of customers that just didn't plant anything. And, you know, that uh, my mother planted impatience and she did them in containers and they were wonderful. They never had a problem. It was amazing. I I kind of used her as a as a guinea pig and uh she pretty much, you know, did everything right. But you know, I just don't know what the recommendation. I guess for this spring my recommendation to people is be diverse. I mean Oh, that's a great great suggestion. You know, um with clever design, instead of planting an area completely with impatience. Maybe a, maybe a gardener could learn to plant a more diverse shade garden and plant it with good design in mind so that just in case those impatience are attacked by downy mildew this year, there's still enough of the garden left architecturally that it still looks good. And although the impatience aren't there anymore, it, it still holds together. So I, I think that's a good challenge for some of our gardeners. My gut feeling is that this is a good challenge for all of us, including the plant breeders. So I'm pretty sure that those impatience breeders are already thinking ahead. And it wouldn't surprise me if within just two or three years we had impatience that are resistant to downy mildew. So I view this as a pretty temporary problem. Yeah, it's amazing. I, uh, the customers that were coming back in later in the season and them talking about, you know, the sun patients, the New Guinea patients, all the other things, begonias and lobelias and bacopas and, and, and coleus. Oh, wow, coleus. How excited they were that they tried something different and how they, they were surprised that things thrived as well as they did. Oh, yes. You know, I I find coleus to be just a big puzzle. And I think it's because some people remember when coleus just weren't the high performers that they are today. So sometimes I mention, well, why not grow some coleus? And people kind of wrinkle their nose and say, coleus? But, oh boy, the coleus that have come out in the last 10 or 12 years are just, as you know, outstanding Mm. plants. Absolutely. And, you know, can go all the way from sun to shade. You know, it's not just that plant that you can just only use in shade. And I agree with you. The genetics have changed things in coleus. And that old-fashioned little coleus plant that you bought, you know, 10, 15 years ago is not the same same plant now. Absolutely. It's not even managed the same. We did some coleus trials here, and we had maybe... Oh, 50 or 60 different kinds of coleus in the field in absolute full sun. And every single one of them performed well. And almost none of them ever produced any flowers. And on the old coleus, that was the challenge, was getting out there on a regular basis and 
deadheading those little spindly flowers to keep the foliage going strong. But now they do it on their own. Yeah, it's it's amazing the 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 changes we've had in the in the old fashioned plants, and you know there's many others that are coming down the pike here. Um, and hearing that research that you're doing up at the university is really important for customers to understand that they're we're testing all of this stuff extensively. Absolutely, um, and you know there are lots of places where people can go to learn. I think sometimes we get in our in our habits, and we forget to go and learn new things. But the field trials here in Orono, the trials at Coastal Maine Botanical mm. Gardens, um, the plantings, incredible plantings at a lot of our retail garden centers and nurseries that just show so many ideas that if, if we just go um, at the times of year when our gardens aren't quite perfect and we think, what could I do if we go at that time to look at those display gardens and say, oh, there's there's something that mm. I can put on my list for next year because it's performing now at the time of year when I need something. I think there are lots of places where people could go to learn. Good topic for another show. Absolutely. Lois, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be back with more from the Joy of Gardening on News Talk WLOB. At Costa Maine Organic Products, we've known for a long time that plants love lobster just as much as people do. It's one of the reasons we started composting marine residuals back in 1996. And although we've had great success in getting gardeners and their plants hooked on lobster throughout New England, the Mid-Atlantic, and Midwest, the heart and soul of what we do is here in Maine. Plants love lobster because the calcium and chitin in the lobster shells break down in the composting process and become plant-ready food that help to make your plants strong and healthy. And of course, the plants don't use any butter, so they're even healthier. So support your local retailer and Maine's lobster industry by using Coast of Maine's Quaddy Lobster Compost in your garden. Coast of Maine, a lobster compost company. Approved for organic growers by the Maine Organic Farmers and Gardeners Association. Visit us at www.coastofmaine.com. For over 60 years, Wiltproof has provided the most effective protection against moisture loss in plants under water stress, and no other product comes close. Our non-hazardous, organic, and biodegradable film is like having several layers of protection. As the outside layer of Wiltproof wears off with the weather, another layer forms. Wiltproof is the only horticulture anti-transparent that has the ability to provide this long-lasting protection. Put your trust in Wiltproof. Check out their site at wiltproof.com. That's wilt-proof, P-R-U-F, dot com. I want a great garden this year, but I don't know where to start. Does this sound like you? With so many great plants available, it can be tough knowing which ones are right for you and your home. The gardening pros at Estabrooks can help. Every time I come, they're always helpful to us. They are really knowledgeable about things because I don't know that much about gardening, so they always tell me what you know would be right in my house in the sun and the setting. To learn more, visit estabrooksonline.com. Estabrooks for the joy of gardening. Welcome back to The Joy of Gardening by Estabrooks. I'm Tom Estabrook, and today we are speaking with Lois Stack, Extension Specialist of Ornamental Horticulture at the University of Maine. Lois, how are you? 
Just great. You know, it's great to have, you know, your resource um, to talk about these issues. And Downey Mildew, I think we've covered at this point, it's good to be able to give that feedback, how we're evolving and changing, you know. Like you said in the beginning of the interview, you know, we have to make an educated guess on some of these things and warn people. Because if we don't warn you, then what? You know, it's it's every it's our fault. <laughs> Absolutely, and that's why people go to garden centers is to go to the people who have been growing the plants in the greenhouse for months and know how the crop performs, have past years' experience, have lots of information to offer. And gardening is nothing without the information. Absolutely. So let's move on because it's getting towards that time frame where we should start thinking about probably starting some seeds relatively soon. Correct. Oh, absolutely. In fact, if you, many of the listeners, I'm sure, are saying, ha, I'm ahead of you here, because <laughs> I start my onions in late January. Absolutely. So we're already there, absolutely. You know, so can you give us some tips of what, you know, folks should think about when they're doing seeds? Let's face it, the vegetable movement is in full swing. Growing your own vegetables at your own house, knowing your footprint and where things come from, getting kids involved, all of that is a big movement right now. And I always find it tough because, you know, a lot of new gardeners come in in May and they want to start their seeds and they don't realize that we're already two or three months behind um, or more. Uh, So give us some quick tips of what folks should think about when seeding in the home. Absolutely. Um, I think the first thing to do is that if you're going to buy seed, buy it quickly because the seed is a limited amount of a commodity. When it's gone, it's gone. It's not like the like the garden center or or catalog company can just make more seed. It grew last year. Mm-hmm. So the the typically um, I always tell people which onion I grow from seed because I have onions still in rock solid condition in September of the following year. If you pick the right onion, you can have a very long-term storage crop. But you know what? When I tell people in April that that's my favorite onion seed, number one, it's too late to grow it. And number two, it is sold out. Right. So number one, think ahead and buy seed in a timely manner. A good time is January because we have those dark days. And what else can you do in January? That's right. So, so look at the seed and what you're going to need. Buy from a good source where you know that the seed packet you buy contains the seed that you expect to be in there and that it's clean seed and that there isn't any weed seed or any disease organisms. So buy a really good quality seed. Mm-hmm. Seed, although it seems sometimes like a packet of seed is expensive, really when you look at the overall cost of growing the crop, seed is a small amount. So if it costs you an extra dollar a packet, it's probably not um, that big a deal in the big picture. And many of our seeds, the packet, the unused part of the packet can be saved until next year. Mm -hmm. There aren't very many seeds that don't last a whole year. Um, The second thing to think about after seed source um, is cleanliness. And you know this so well from growing in a greenhouse that preventing problems is much easier than managing them if they appear. So everything should be clean. Clean seed, clean hands, clean tools, clean containers, clean Mm -hmm. new unused potting mix, a clean place. If you can just keep the area clean, you'll prevent a lot of disease problems. Number three is warmth. Um, 
And when we think of our, our vegetable and flower seeds and how they grow outdoors and the conditions, including temperature, that they perform best at, we can divide our vegetables and, and flowers into cool crops that grow well in cool conditions and warm season crops that grow well in midsummer. But all of them germinate. They, at the beginning of their lives, they need very warm conditions. In fact, um, some of our crops germinate best at as high as 85 degrees Fahrenheit. So warmth is important. Find a warm place to germinate the seeds. At that stage of a plant's life, warmth is much more important than light. Mm -hmm. So when you're first germinating the seeds, find a good warm place. I would recommend a temperature between 70 and 75 degrees as a good place to germinate seeds. So the windowsill is not going to cut it, at least not in my house, but maybe a heating pad underneath. Um, Heating pads are available for seed germination. Um, Sitting on top of the freezer or refrigerator where there's a warm but not too hot motor underneath, find a warm place. Once the seeds come up, then move them to the very best light that you have. If you're using a window, south or southwest is best. If you're using lights fluorescent tubes, and now LED lights are used Mm. by some people, but most people in their homes probably have fluorescent tubes, and they should only be four or six inches above the seeds. If they're higher than that, the light is pretty low. Um, In that growing on phase, I think the next thing to think about is water. And as you know, that's the hardest job in the greenhouse. You have to deliver enough but if you deliver too much water, you can run into some serious problems. So always water the seedlings so that they remain moist but not wet. And do you, do you Lois, recommend the, the little greenhouse packages, you know, that have like a clear dome that kind of almost act like a terrarium? Well, that's a great question. I, I watch how so many people germinate seeds in a greenhouse. And, of course, larger greenhouses often put their seed trays out on an open bench and they water from underneath um, or with a timer where the water is delivered at a very uniform uh, time interval and those seedlings never dry out. Mm. In my home, I go to work every day, so I can't look at my seedlings during the course of the day to make sure they're not dried out. So when I germinate seeds, I have a container, a shallow container filled with clean peat light mix. I put my seeds on, either don't cover them or cover them very lightly with a little bit more peat mix. Then I water them in, and I do put a plastic dome on top because I'm afraid that they'll dry out during the day. But I never leave that dome on 24-7. I take it off every day. That way the plants get an air exchange and some of the excess humidity can can disperse into the air. But during the daytime when I'm not able to check them for 8 or 9 or 10 hours at a time, I do use the domes. Yeah, it seems to me like our homes are quite dry in the winter months. So this helps raise the humidity around the seedlings. We do need to be cautious about fungus, obviously, you know, and I like the idea of, of what I would call burping that container, taking the, the dome off and, and letting all that, that moisture di- dissipate and then letting it build back up again the next day. Absolutely. You know, I, I, I sometimes hear people say, oh, my seeds didn't come up. I must have gotten a bad lot of seed. 
But really, as long as I've been germinating seeds, and as many as I germinate every year, I've had almost no seeds that I can really know were a bad lot of seeds. It, it just doesn't happen. Mm. Our seed companies are, are very good at supplying a product that, that helps us be good gardeners. But what does happen is there's a group of fungi that attack seeds just at the point they're starting to germinate. They're called water molds, and they cause a root rot. That There are several root rots that result from them, but these water molds are in the air every place. Mm -hmm. All they have to do is land on a cold, wet growing mix. So that's the reason for the warmth, and that's the reason for not overwatering. And the plastic domes come into play because if those spores are floating around everywhere and all they have to do is land, if you put that plastic barrier on top of the seeds, then the spores can't land. Right, right. No, I mean, fungus is, is, I think, where most customers go wrong in that they don't realize they have it and the little itty-bitty seedlings melt away. The seed actually did germinate, it just they melt away right at that initial point. Exactly. And I think it's a good reminder that when a seed germinates, the first thing to emerge is the root. So by the time the little shoot emerges above the soil, there's already a sizable root growing downward, and it can mine that potting mix for moisture. So I remember when I was a new gardener, and I tried so hard not to let those little seedlings dry out because I would look at the very surface of the potting mix and see that it had turned light color, and I thought, oh, it's dry, I have to water again. But just an eighth of an inch deep, there was plenty of moisture. Yeah, it's amazing. I I think any gardener and also any grower, I know we always tend to put too much water in the initial stages. So you have to consciously say, I'm not going to water I'm not going to water. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. I agree. I, it's a balance, and over time, you get to understand how moist or dry the potting mix is. One of the ways we do that is by looking at the color or the shrinkage as the water evaporates, but another way is by lifting that container to see how wet it is because, of course, water weighs a lot in that, in that container. And over time, we learn to water kind of like the like the three bears. We don't water too much, we don't water too little, we water just right. And getting there can take a little practice. Absolutely. So let's talk a little bit about what seeds should really people put directly in the ground comparative to starting seeds in the home or, or whatnot. I mean, I, it always amazes me people who will buy bean seed and they start it in the house. <laughs> and, and you know, they wonder why they're not being successful. Oh, yes, that's a great, a great topic. Um, we grow plants indoors because those crops don't have enough weeks of gardening time to mature in our gardens. So we start them early. So things like onions, which onions, all of the onions, onions, shallots, leeks, can already be started. Many people start them in late January and set them out in late April. So that's a crop that benefits by being started indoors. But even that, it can be it can be kind of confusing because you actually can grow a good 
uh, a very decent crop of onions by directly seeding them in the garden in early spring. And our climate has changed enough that our seasons are a little longer than they used to be, and we, we do have time to mature a crop of onions in a season. But you know what? I still start mine indoors. Right. I, I like mean, doing I, it. I think taking Mother Nature out of the equation for when we have a shorter season is a good thing for Maine. And, yes. you know, so if you can get certain things started, but, you know, it, it seems to me like the new gardener wants to come in and buy corn, peas, beans, carrots, all beets, all these things that it's better to put them directly in the ground. Oh, absolutely. Especially the ones that you mentioned of uh, that are crops whose roots we eat. Things mm-hmm. like carrots and beets and rutabagas and parsnips and turnips and all those root crops really don't like to have their roots um, restricted by a container. If if a carrot root reaches the bottom of the container, it will fork. So then instead of getting one nice carrot root, we get that, that funny bunch of fingers of carrots so absolutely, there are some crops that just do better in the garden. So which ones are those? Well, there are cool season crops that you can start early in the season that have plenty of weeks of time that you can directly seed them in the garden in late April or early May and still finish the crop well. So things like lettuce, spinach, all of the other greens. Peas are one of the very first crops to get going. Um, carrots can be seeded early. Uh, among our flowers, um, the cool season crops tend to be grown in greenhouses, things like sweet alyssum and pansies, because they we really want to enjoy their flowers during mm. that cool season of the spring. Then, a little bit later in the spring, we can um, set out some of the plants that were grown in a greenhouse or on our windowsill, things like broccoli and kale, kohlrabi, Brussels sprouts, cauliflower, Mm. um, that sometime in the second or third week of May. And then as our soils warm up, there are some crops that we can start at the very end of May or beginning of June. Those are our warm season crops. And some of them can be directly put into the garden as seeds. You mentioned beans, which, which are really in that group. They absolutely perform best when they're seeded direct in the garden. But you have to wait until the soil is warm. So beans, corn, those are crops that, that are summer crops that if we seed them on the 1st of June, there's plenty of time to grow a good crop. Other warm season crops, things like tomatoes and peppers and eggplants, if we seeded them in June when the soil is finally warm enough, we would run out of season before mm. they really had much production. So we rely on our garden centers or growing plants on our, on our, in our homes to get those plants off to a good start so that by the time we plant them in June, they're already six or seven weeks old and they'll have time to mature their crop. Yeah, there's certain things that I always recommend people just, the warm season plants, it is worth your time to think about buying plants that are already started. It's t- it, it's tough to keep them happy in the house and, and really do it effectively. In a greenhouse, we do a good job with it. And you're buying time, you know, so that one tomato plant that's 3 or $4 or even $5, you're buying time, and when you're getting 30 or 40 pounds of fruit off of it, it's pretty inexpensive compared to three ninety nine a pound in the store. 
Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, um, it, it becomes confusing when you talk about all of these factors uh, to a new gardener because they haven't got the experience to put it into context. But another example that I think of, uh, two examples, one is snapdragons. Snapdragons do best in cool weather. So if we buy snapdragons from a garden center and set them out in late April or early May, we'll get a terrific crop of snapdragon either in the garden or for bouquets sometime in June mm. when it's still slightly cool out. Now, we could direct seed our, our um, snapdragons in late April or early May, but they take so long that we wouldn't get any cut flowers until late August or early September. So sometimes we can do plants the both ways, but we get two different results. Okay. Lois, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be back with more from the Joy of Gardening on News Talk WLOB. Regular old mulch leaving your plants wanting more? Casella Organics Nutri-Mulch is a superior mulch for improving any landscape. Made in Maine from aged native bark and earthlife compost, its dark color and rich texture are ideal for perennials, ornamentals, trees, and shrubs. Earthlife Nutri-Mulch is nutrient-stabilized with compost, so the bark doesn't compete with plants for nutrients. Visit CaselaOrganics.com or call 800-4-COMPOST for a source near you. Welcome back to The Joy of Gardening by Estabrooks. I'm Tom Estabrook, and we're talking with Lois Stack from the Cooperative Extension Ornamental Horticulture Specialist. Uh, Lois, so we've talked about seeding. You know, a lot of things people get going early, you know, do the things that you can do that are going to be successful. Let's move on to talking about 2014 and, you know, we've had a lot of cold weather this winter. How does that affect our insect population and hardiness of plants. And and uh, we've been fortunate. We've stayed pretty cold. We haven't had a lot of ups and downs. But uh, how does that affect our, our plants and, and insects out there? Oh, well, we have what we call a plant hardiness zone map. Actually, there are several, but the most common one that's used is the USDA plant hardiness zone map. So that helps us select plants. But we have to think about where was that information collected that helps us predict where plants do well. And, of course, it's, it's collected by weather services and by backyard gardeners who submit their data to the system, and then that helps create the map. We have to remember that that data was taken up in the air. Our trees and shrubs, living parts, are up in the air. So those hardiness zone maps are a pretty good predictor of where plants will perform well. And you're right, as long as we don't have long spells of warm weather during the middle of the winter, our trees and shrubs, if we selected them by that map, are probably going to do pretty well. I think the biggest threat this year to our trees in particular was all of that ice that developed over the Christmas holiday. And in some cases, some plants, notably our birches that have such flexible stems, bent way down to the ground. My birches, my river birches, my white birch, my Japanese birch are all back straight up and they look terrific. They have thinner branches, so I don't think I'll even need to do very much pruning on them. 
Um, but I did. I have noticed that some of the birches and and uh, aspens that bent down and had the misfortune of living next to a roadside where the tips of their branches got ground into that bank of snow, they're still kind of bowing down. So I think the best approach to that is to sit and wait until we see how they respond in the spring. Most of them are going to come back upright and be their old selves, but a few of them uh, might have to be staked or guyed for a year to, to bring them back um, to full height and to let them build some good compression wood to make them be upright again. Uh, but I think that pruning might be some pruning because of all of the weight of that ice and the bending of the branches mm. might be the, the biggest thing we have to worry about on our trees and shrubs. Um, the fact that those cold weather predictions are gathered in air temperature means that the hardiness zone maps aren't quite as good at predicting whether our our garden perennials, things like peony and iris and shasta daisy, their living parts are in the ground. So those maps aren't quite as good at predicting whether those plants will survive the winter. They depend a little bit more on what's going on in the soil. Um, we, although we haven't had long periods of very warm weather this winter, we have had some brief thaws where some of that snow thawed out and has created ice layers just above the ground. And from my experience in the spring, each year when I hear from gardeners what plants made it and what plants didn't, when we have a layer of ice on the ground, the plants that I hear people have trouble with are lupins and um, irises. They seem to not tolerate that wet topsoil with a layer of ice on top of them. So time will tell as to whether we have problems with our, our plant materials that, that we cut back to the ground every year. We'll just have to wait and see. Yeah, I, it, it seems to me that, you know, with perennials in particular, that ice layer can be the biggest problem. It also can create a lot of problems on our sod with snow molds and some of the other things. Uh, luckily, with the shrubs, we've stayed pretty cold. The ice has been bad in certain parts of the state. We've dodged the bullet here in southern Maine, but when you kind of go up the coast and, and inland, I think you guys have had it a little bit worse uh, than the greater Portland area. We have had some cold temperatures. We've been well below zero a few times. And I think it's a very interesting thing to watch every spring when we look at our trees and shrubs that bloom in the spring before about mid-June. Things like lilacs and rhododendrons and blueberries. The, the plants that form their flower buds in the fall and then those flower buds have to survive the winter in order to open up in the spring. And the, the two I think of that, that often have some problems are rhododendrons and forsythias, because although the leaf buds are perfectly hardy and those plants leaf out and green up in the spring every year, their flower buds are a little bit less hardy. So oftentimes, it, especially further north and inland in Maine, I'll see forsythias where, and, and some rhododendrons where they only have flowers on the bottom half of the plant and the top half of the plant, the flower buds all die. And that's related to our snow because the snow on the bottom of the plant insulates them and keeps those flower buds alive. Mm. But the, plant, the flower buds on the top of the plant that are totally exposed when we get that 20 below zero reading, those flower buds may not make it. 
Um, does it kill the plant? No. And there's always next year. But it is fun to watch. Absolutely. I mean, we see that year in and year out on different plants. Let's talk just a couple minutes here because we're getting towards the end of the show. What about insects? Does this does a cold affect them or or kill off the eggs or of, of different insects out there? We've had pretty harsh, you know, temperatures, which we haven't had in a number of years. We have, and every time I bring this up with my entomologist friends, mm. they laugh one of those evil laughs, <laughs> as if I were so innocent as to believe that Japanese beetles would disappear because of a little cold. And in truth, we have to think about where and how our insects overwinter. So all of our white grubs, Japanese beetles, and all of the other beetles who, who lay their eggs in the soil, usually in the lawn, and those larvae hatch in August, and then they are many of them, and then they migrate a little further down into the soil. You know what? When the weather gets really cold and the frost penetrates the soil, they just go a little deeper. So they always seem to make it through every winter. Maybe their numbers are a little bit lower after a tough winter, but it never kills all of them. Absolutely. Um, on the other hand, some of our insects like elongate scale and hemlock woolly adelgid on our hemlocks and, and some of our other evergreens, they live up in the trees. And if we have a really severe winter, a good portion of them can die. And in fact, when we look at those problems that are migrating from the south upward into Maine, it's our winter that keeps them at bay. Mm -hmm. So winter, winter temperatures do have an impact on some insects. We just have to understand the insects. Only Mother Nature will know. Exactly. That's right. So, well, uh, Lois, I'd like to thank you for coming on. We'll have you on again. Uh, always a wealth of information and knowledge. Uh, thank you so much. Oh, my pleasure. It's always fun to talk about gardening. Uh, especially in February. <laughs> exactly. All right, Lois Stack from the Cooperative Extension. Uh, thank you so much again. Thanks. All right, we are uh, wrapping up the show here. We just got a few minutes left, and uh, we're going to push off Jeff Marsteller from Cozy Acres to next week's show. Uh, he's going to talk to us about all the wonderful technology things that he's got going on, whether it be geothermal or uh, also solar power. He has got a greenhouse that is zero emissions. So we're going to talk next week with him about that. And we're also going to talk with Carrie Ann Mendez uh, and about her books and also her move to Maine and uh, an exciting, uh, wonderful announcement I've got for next week. So I'm excited about talking with Carrie Ann and, uh, you know, a whole lot of things going on out there in the garden. I, I just want to touch on the cold temperatures and, and the insects. We also have an insect at our door that we're going to be bringing up in a future topic. And we've talked about it a little bit on the show, but it's, it's really becoming a concern of mine and it's emerald ash borer. And, you know, the reason this is such a concern for me personally is about 35% of the trees on Main Street in Yarmouth are ash. You know, they're for, during the 70s and 80s and early 90s, we planted a lot of ash. And so over the last 30 to 50 years, our towns have created this microcosm similar to what we had with Dutch elm disease. And this insect is knocking at our door. At uh, some of our meetings that we have throughout the winter, uh, the state officials like Ann Gibbs have basically told us that the insect's here. We just haven't found it. So we're going to bring on some specialists like Jim Dill and some other folks and kind of have a, a roundtable discussion here about 
this insect and what we need to do to prepare. I've been doing a lot of work with the Yarmouth Tree Committee on this and what we're going to try to do in the future. And so there's a lot of unknowns about this insect, but what we do know is like it's like a rocket ship that if you look at the maps, if you go online and look at the infestation maps of this insect three years ago and then you look at what they're predicting for this year, it is not moving at a 10 or 12 mile clip that it used to. It's moving at a 100 to 150 mile clip. And that is scary to me because southern Maine can be engulfed in a very, very quick fashion. Once it's here, once it's there, do we need to be proactive? All sorts of questions. What do we need to look at for signs on this insect? So, you know, we'll be bringing that up as we get closer to spring. And part of the reason I want to get this done in February and March is you really need to think about talking to your professional on whether or not you need to be proactive with your ash trees in your yard. Do you have that 60-foot ash tree in your backyard that you need to protect? Because part of the things that we're finding is if you protect them now, the insect will fly right by. It will go on to the next town. And that's part of the reason why the spread of this insect has just exploded. A huge concern for me with this insect, emerald ash borer. Look it up. Look at the websites. Look for signs in your yard because we need to get confirmation of where it is and we may have damage already that's occurring the state is putting up five or six hundred traps across the state last year there was 750 so we're looking for it but we need eyes on the ground so get involved and make sure and get out there and look in your garden so a lot of problems in new hampshire massachusetts connecticut south of us it's on the border which means it probably has crossed the border. Get out there. Enjoy your garden. It's another Saturday, one closer to spring. Start some seeds inside. I'd like to thank Lois Stack, and we're going to see you next Saturday. Get out there and enjoy your garden.